Acts 2, 22 through 36. Man of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And David said concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also dwelled in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the plans of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He was poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said, My Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is the very word of God. The mission of Crosstown Church is to make disciples of Jesus by exposing people to credible gospel community. And every year since 2013, we've done a short series called Crosstown Basics to help keep before us what we consider to be the three essential ingredients to fulfilling our mission. It is our conviction that disciples of Jesus are made by the gospel in community, and on mission. We believe that the way to make disciples of Jesus is by the gospel, in community, and on mission. Gospel, community, mission. These are the three essential ingredients, we believe, to disciple making. We must proclaim the gospel, or we cannot make disciples. We must live in gospel community, or we will not be formed and shaped as Jesus' disciples. And we must be on gospel mission if we want to be disciples of Jesus and if we want to make disciples of Jesus. Today and the next two weeks, we'll be considering these three ingredients once more because we have to go over them every year just to remind ourselves about the basics. So today, the gospel. Now, here at Crosstown Church, every membership interview that we've conducted 
begins by asking the candidate to answer the question, what is the gospel? Crosstown members, remember when you were asked that question? How should we answer it? One author suggests that we look at what the earliest Christians said about Jesus and the significance of his life, death, and resurrection. I think that's a good idea. So let's do that this morning. But I also want to add that we need to include the significance of Jesus's ascension as well. Jesus's life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. If we want to understand what the gospel is, we need to ask ourselves, what is the significance of these events? So in order to see what the first Christians had to say about the significance of Jesus's life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, we have turned this morning to the book of Acts. And specifically this morning, I want to look at Acts chapters 2, 3, and 4, which report events immediately following the ascension of Jesus to heaven. And what I'd like us to see this morning is that the gospel is a claim about reality that creates real-life opportunities and also generates quite a bit of hostility. The gospel is a claim about reality that creates real-life opportunities that also generates quite a bit of hostility. So, gospel reality, gospel opportunity, and gospel hostility. We begin this morning with gospel reality, and let's get this straight. The message we proclaim as Christians is about reality. It's about how things truly are because it is about real life events and their significance. The gospel we preach necessarily needs to be true to life because it is fundamentally a claim about how the world truly is. Now here in Acts chapter two, we read about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the first group of Jesus followers. At this point, the Bible tells us there was 120 of them, maybe just a few more than are gathered for worship here this morning. They all begin in verse four to speak in other tongues. Verse 11 says that what they're talking about is the mighty works of God. But notice here this morning, we're not gonna dwell long on this spectacular event. What I want to point out is that it was a very public event. It drew the attention of a crowd who wanted to know, as verse 12 says, what does it mean? What's the significance of what's happening here? And beginning in verse 14, are you looking at it? Acts chapter 2, verse 14, Peter sets out to give an answer. Now, let's look down actually at verses 22 to 23, where our text began this morning, and we see Peter giving this explanation for what is happening. Now, you might have to kind of backtrack a little bit here in your mind because you probably already have a lot of assumptions about the significance of Jesus in his life. And let's just let the first Christians tell us what's going on. What do these real-life events mean? Here's what he says. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, 
a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now notice, Peter begins with the bare facts of history. Facts that are, incidentally, not really contested by serious historians to this day, Christian or non-Christian. Everything that Paul, uh, Peter said there, for the most part, is not very controversial in the sense that these are real historical events. Jesus of Nazareth, he says, was a man who lived an extraordinary life. Historians will tell you there's something remarkable about this man, Jesus. He did extraordinary things that caught the attention of his fellow Jews in the first century. And even as the rumors started swirling, could this be the Messiah? His life was cut short, crucified, as we just confessed, under Pontius Pilate, as the Jewish authorities succeeded in having him eliminated. That's the bare facts of the historical events about Jesus. But what Peter says here, his argument about the significance of this event, is that this apparent tragedy, the death of the would-be king and lord, was all, he says, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. What? God planned the death of the king? Why would he do that? It's preposterous. So in verses 24 to 36, Peter declares that of this Jesus, that God raised him up, resurrected him from the dead. Now, he doesn't linger here to try to prove that claim. Historians will say that this Jesus of Nazareth lived an extraordinary life, gathered, garnered attention from a crowd, began to create uh, attention and then was eliminated, crucified under Pontius Pilate. And then three days later, there's controversy about what happened to his body. Those are the facts of history. Peter doesn't linger long here to try to prove the resurrection because he knows his audience. He's speaking to Jews who simply could not comprehend the possibility that the one they were supposed to be looking for, the one who would lead them out of exile and to the long-awaited Jewish hope, could have had his life cut short, and this by his own people. It makes no sense. So Peter then appeals to the sacred text. He reminds them of what David said in Psalm 16 when he spoke of God's Holy One, whom God would not abandon to Hades or to the grave. He would not allow to see corruption. This is something, Peter says, remember, we know this is part of the Jewish story. His argument is that, in fact, the one that they ought to be looking for was not one who would not die in failure, but rather one who would be raised from the dead in victory. Peter then, I imagine, points across the field, up on a hill, to David's tomb. And he says, well, what do you think? Clearly, David was not talking here about himself. 
he's right there, dead, in a box. But if some future descendant who would sit on his royal throne, then he says, the facts of history have now made it plain who David was talking about. The prophecy of Psalm 16 is now fulfilled. And by fulfilled, he means we, it's right here in front of us. The plain facts of history are being played out in our day. David, he says in verse 31, was prophesying about the resurrection of the Christ. And it's this Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, whom God raised up. Now, notice in verse 33 that Peter quickly associates the resurrection of Jesus with his subsequent ascension. It's one of the facts about Jesus that is often misunderstood or overlooked, even by Christians. Not you, though, of course. God, he says, has exalted Jesus to his right hand. You say, okay, Jesus is resurrected from the dead. Well, where is he? Where is he, Christians? Show us where he's at. And the answer is, well, he has ascended. Convenient, I know. But no, the ascension means that Jesus, this Jesus, this human being, Jesus of Nazareth, you know where he's from. You know his name. You touched him. You talked to him. This Jesus, God has exalted to his right hand. He has given to Jesus, he says, the promise of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus has poured out his Holy Spirit right here in front of everyone for everybody to see, verse 33 says. It's a public event. And then Peter turns to another sacred text, Psalm 110, to demonstrate that God's plan all along, precisely in the death of Jesus, was to raise him from the dead and exalt him to his right hand. Now, do you hear what this language is? Ascension, right hand of the Father. This is royal language. This is kingly language. So let's make it plain. The ascension of Jesus refers not to some geographical journey from earth into outer space. Jesus isn't a spaceman who got there before Elon Musk got there. Are you with me? That's not what the ascension means. The ascension means this. Take, make it plain. Let's make it, get it clear. It refers to the significant act of taking one's place on a throne. So get this now. The ascension of Jesus means there is right now a human being with a real human body, flesh and bones, who sits on heaven's throne. That's what the ascension means. And so then comes this pronouncement in verse 36. Look at this here. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So there you have it. What is the gospel? Right here in Acts 2.36 is one of the great gospel summaries taken right from the Bible itself. 
Now, like all summaries, it doesn't say everything that needs to be said. But this clearly is an important point that is often left unsaid, but not today. We're going to say it. Given the realities of what has just happened to Jesus in his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus is Lord is an accurate and meaningful summary of the gospel. Jesus is Lord. By the way, it is also a summary of the gospel that necessarily demands a response. You hear the proclamation, Jesus is Lord? You can't do nothing with that. It's a line drawn in the sand. Look at what, Peter's, what happens next. Right after Peter preaches this message and gives his gospel summary in verse 36. Now look what happens in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what should we do? Peter has just said that the creator God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You see, Jesus is Lord is bad news if you are his enemy. If your response to him is crucify him, take him out of the picture. Things don't usually go well for the enemies of a Lord. But Peter has good news to proclaim to his enemies. Look at verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, don't rush past that. You see, if Jesus is Lord, this is inherently good news because it means, in the first century, Caesar is not Lord. You be an enemy of Caesar, you know what that's going to get you? Just look to Calvary's Hill and you'll find out. But if you're an enemy of this Lord, got good news to preach to you. You see, all the Caesars of the world, whether they go by that title or some other title, boss, king, president, every other Caesar of the world, once they're in power, they put their enemies out of power, or they try to. They will crush those who oppose them. But not this Lord. This Lord has compassion on his enemies. This Lord is full of pity, full of love, full of forgiveness. So the gospel message, Jesus is Lord, comes with an open and gracious invitation to lay down your weapons of resistance and trust him. To be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ means, are you listening, Cora? To, are you listening, baptized ones? It means to publicly profess that you are in agreement with the gospel summary. And you are now being marked 
as one of Christ's converts, disciples. It means you are now saying no to all the other would-be lords who want to crush their enemies. And you're saying yes to the one who is the true and exalted king of all creation. And the amazing thing is that if anyone will do so, watch this now. This Lord does not merely spare your life. All right, I'll let you live. I'm merciful. He doesn't just allow you to go on living in his kingdom, though only with a suspicious eye on you. Slavery. Just burden them down to keep you from further revolt. No. This Lord turns you into a citizen. All the rights and privileges of belonging to him. (laughs) That's amazing. Peter says, repent and be baptized. What he does not say next is, then you will know for sure that when you die, you will go to heaven. That's not what he says. What he says is, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You're a hard crowd today. The gospel message is very much about the generous offer of the Lord Jesus to not only put away your guilt for rebelling against him, but also to give you a gift of the Holy Spirit, a gift for advancing his kingdom causes right now in your life as a citizen of his victorious and everlasting kingdom. You see, the gospel message, again, I'm just using today this summary, Jesus is Lord, it comes to us with a sense of urgency, but not necessarily for the reasons that we usually give. We Christians tend to know that there's some kind of urgency to this gospel message, but but why? Why? Here's why. If Jesus is Lord, and if you are invited to get in on his kingdom as a citizen, with a gift of the Holy Spirit poured upon you to advance his kingdom purposes, then don't you see there is an enormous opportunity in your life. There is real meaning and purpose and significance to your life as a disciple of the king and as a citizen of his kingdom. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done with your life. There is an opportunity before you with this Lord. So, Look at it here. When the people ask the question, what does this mean in verse 12? And when other people say in verse 13, it doesn't mean a thing. (laughs) Look what they say. These people are just being silly. They're probably drunk. Move along. Nothing to see here. Peter's answer in verses 14 to 21 calls attention to what time it is. Got your watch on? (laughs) Won't help you right now. I'm talking about a different kind of time. He says this, these people are not drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. (laughs) They haven't had time. They haven't had time to get drunk. There's another spirit at work right here. 
verses 14 to 21, Peter begins to detail how this is the fulfillment of the prophecy of one of Israel's prophets, Joel. It's a sign of the arrival of what he calls the last days. In Jewish thought, this is the time when God would do something dramatic and new. The promise of the prophets, you can read it right there in Joel. The promise of the prophets was that he would pour out his spirit on all his people, sons and daughters, old and young alike, male and female. Listen, the results then would be earth-shattering, to use a modern apocalyptic expression, just as Peter cites Joel's prophetic one in verses 19 and 20. And on that day, the prophecy declared, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So here then is a point that we ought to make as we seek to understand the gospel from the perspective of what the earliest Christians had to say about it. Listen, the gospel message, Jesus is Lord, is about something wonderful and dramatic that is already in progress. Not about something that is not yet happened. Somebody needs to pay attention to this this morning. You didn't hear what I just said. The gospel message, Jesus is Lord, is about something wonderful and dramatic that has already begun and is in progress. It's not about something that's yet to come. It's not that there is nothing to say about what is yet to come, but if the gospel we preach is mainly about what is still in the future rather than what has already happened, we need to be corrected. The earliest Christians said, look at what just happened. That's what they're pointing to. Look at the life of Jesus in the first century, right in front of you, in reality. You see, too many Christians today get enamored with Bible prophecies that we assume are yet to be fulfilled when it seems the first Christians were enamored with what they were convinced were Bible prophecies that had already come to pass. The Apostle Paul, by the way, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says this, Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time when God has acted dramatically in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Because Jesus is Lord, we are now living in the long-awaited days of fulfillment. The Holy Spirit being given to all of God's people makes that point very clear. So now, look what happens Repent and be baptized. Baptism is the sign of one's entry into a lifetime of kingdom service for the world's only true Lord. That's what it means to be baptized. You're being initiated in as a citizen of the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit poured upon you and your life matters for the kingdom. All who enter into this kingdom through faith in Christ are given the gift of the Holy Spirit, and you cannot be a citizen of the kingdom and not have the gift. That means that when we become Christians, we should be saying, what now? What's my assignment? What does the Lord Jesus want me to do as a citizen of his kingdom? And by the way, the answer is not, well, just 
white knuckle it, hang on until you die and go to heaven. That's the start. But here it is. There's no white knuckle in this. There's no hanging on, wait until you die and go to heaven. That's good news. That's good news when you're there at that moment. But you and the life the Lord has given you as a citizen of his kingdom is much more important than just to hang on. Now, I want you to see this in our text. The next thing that we are told is that, look at it, those who received his word, this is verse 41, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And then verses 42 to 47 give us a picture of life for these earliest Christians in the gospel community. Now, we'll talk more about the importance of gospel community next week, but I want you to hear notice that the Holy Spirit given to every one of these Christian converts was active among them. All kinds of things were happening. But the result of all of that was a positive impact upon the world around them. Verse 47 says, these Christians were praising God, and look what it says, and having favor with all the people. Ben Witherington, in his commentary on Acts, says this. These early Christians were characterized by having glad and sincere hearts that prompted praise of God and goodwill among the local Jews in general. The result was that daily God added those who were being saved to this community. Its presence and witness were infectious. Now, Christian, ask yourself, what might have gone wrong with the church if that's not the testimony the world has about us today? If the world around us sees us more as a blight on the community than a benevolent presence... And if the last thing anyone wanted to do was come join that kingdom community, stay away from those Christians, what might have gone wrong? I want to suggest this morning that if we have not bought into the gospel as the good news of the kingdom of God that has already come in Jesus, and that by kingdom we mean, in fact, Jesus rules over every square inch of his creation, then it should not surprise us if the gospel we preach is no longer compelling to the unconvinced around us. If our gospel message is primarily about what awaits you after you die, it will not be true to life, and it will be hard for most people to find any interest in it. Just go out on the streets and ask people. If that's the message you preach, it doesn't hit the true-to-life reality. Let me be more blunt. If our gospel message is primarily news about how one can get to heaven when they die, and of course, thereby ensuring that they do not perish in hell, then should we be surprised if most people just aren't interested in our message? However true it may be that one's ultimate destiny after they die could not be less important than anything else for them, the fact is that our present reality of life almost holds all of our attention. I do a little straw poll sometimes. I go around and say, how much time do you spend thinking about when you die? 
And most people tell me, not a whole lot. I mean, there's times when that becomes a very vivid reality. And the gospel message has good news for you. We sang about it this morning. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Even death can't do it. So there's a message there. But most people are concerned about, you know, having enough food to eat, raising their kids, dealing with sickness. Is that what's on your mind this morning? Going to France. Most people spend their days thinking about what's happening now in my life, the present. What if that's the way it's supposed to be after all? What if God actually made you to live in the world that he made for us to inhabit? As we come to chapter 3, we read about an encounter that Peter and John had with a man who was lame from birth, laying here at the temple, verse 2. You know why he's there. You drive by them right here on Penn and I-44. Don't look down your nose at him. You would be right there with him if you couldn't make your living any other way. But when he asked Peter and John for a donation, Peter's response is this. Look at it, verses 6 and 7. Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. Stop. He doesn't say, I got no silver and gold, but let me give you a gospel tract. Think twice before that's the move you make as you stop at the stoplight. Here's what he says. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand, raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Now, I wonder how Peter had the courage, the confidence to do this miracle. I'm not telling you that that's what you should say to the guy under the bridge on the way home. Maybe But what I'm guessing the answer to that question is that at least in part, Peter understood what time it was. He remembered that Jesus had promised that the day would come when they would do greater works than even Jesus himself had done. Jesus was pretty good at making lame people walk again. These would be greater works, not because they were greater works than Jesus, but because Jesus was, this is John 14, 12, Jesus was going to ascend to the right hand of the Father and pour out his Holy Spirit. That's why they'd be greater works. And Jesus had promised right there in John 14, in that day, when this happens, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, when the day of salvation has arrived, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So what about it, brothers and sisters? You want to participate in this promise? You want to do these greater works for the kingdom of God? I'm here to tell you, you can. You're meant for that. But the important point here, the one that is emphasized in our passage this morning, is not the thing itself. 
Don't get your eyes on miracles, signs, and wonders. It's all about the name. Did you see it? Peter would stress to us right here in Acts 3, verse 16, it is his name, by faith in his name, that has made this man strong. So set aside miracles for the moment. Set aside the supernatural. Even a cup of cold water, Jesus said in Matthew 10, given in my name, will do the job that Jesus wants done in his kingdom. How much more the works that you do in your vocation day by day, if you were to now go into your workplace and do your job in his name. This is, by the way, the work that has literally transformed the world we live in today. A little historical reflection would bear that out. The world that we live in right now, 2,000 some years after Jesus of Nazareth, has been completely transformed. How? By Jesus, yes, but by his spirit poured out upon Jesus' people. Talk to me later and I'll give you a book to read that will take up a lot of your time with all of the historical evidence on how the world has been utterly transformed. I can't get into any of that survey now because anyone can see that there's still problems to solve. There's still work that must be done in the world, and it's not going to be a breeze. You see, the gospel always stirs up hostility. And if you're going to be baptized in the name of Jesus, I wouldn't be your friend if I didn't tell you you need to be ready for it. The work that Peter and John did in chapter 3, healing this lame man in Jesus' name, it caught people's attention. Of course it did. Work done in the name of Jesus, empowered by the Spirit of Jesus, will not be ignored forever. In verse 11, the crowd begins to gather around them, and just like he did in the previous chapter, Peter begins to explain. Men of Israel, sound familiar? It's the same thing he said next to he begins the exact same way, and once more, he takes the opportunity to make plain the gospel reality. And here's what he says. Don't look at us as though there's something special about us. It's all because of Jesus. Look again, verse 16. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong. This is how we ought to work how we ought to live our lives as citizens of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Labor in his name by the power of his spirit, and sooner or later, people are going to start noticing. You're going to stand out, even if only because you seem to be the only one in the office who displays love and joy, peace and patience, kindness and goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, a little self-control would probably help too. Just remember, when this happens, it is your opportunity to say, why do you wonder at this? 
Why are you staring at us as though by our own power or piety we have done this thing? And then tell them by whose power and in whose name you have done your job and say, and you can join me in this kingdom. Oh, and then don't be surprised when you face hostility for the name. Don't be surprised when you find plenty who are, in the words found in Acts 4, verse 2, greatly annoyed because you keep talking about Jesus and the realities of his resurrection. Expect that something's, someone, someone is going to get annoyed if you just keep on talking about Jesus. And don't be deterred if this annoyance turns to aggression. Now, when I wrote this, I said, okay, but don't be annoying for annoyance's sake, all right? It's no virtue to just annoy people. But like Peter and John, who got arrested here in Acts 4 and put on trial, the powers that be will have no problem if you take credit for the work done in God's kingdom. They start noticing, and you say, well, thanks, I've been working really hard. They're going to say, that a boy. Keep on doing it. That's the spirit. Yeah, the, 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 the realities of an idolatrous world has no problem if you keep worshiping, worshiping your idol. But when you insist, as Peter and John do here in Acts 4.12, that there is no other name but Jesus, it's not going to always be well received. Hostility to the gospel will always aim at one thing, by the way. One thing to diminish your boldness for the name. See Acts 4.18? I'm just about done here. I'm going to keep preaching until I get somebody besides Clyde to say amen this morning. I'm just going to keep on going. Look at Acts 4.18. Okay, fine, listen. Jesus person. Just don't speak or teach in the name of Jesus. It's all we're asking. That will be the sign of hostility. Keep on doing what you're doing. We like you. You're a good employee. You're a good neighbor. Love all that. But can you just kind of cut out the Jesus stuff? Hostility to the gospel is always aiming at one thing. Boldness for the name. Hostility to the gospel is going to aim at one thing, your boldness for the name. Keep on doing what you're doing, but please just don't say the name. So what do we do? We cannot be silent, not if we're citizens of the kingdom of God through the one and only name. How could we shut our mouth? We would end up then giving allegiance to some other Lord. So we must then learn to pray. We must learn the prayer of Acts 4, verses 29 to 30. And I want to close this morning by praying it with you now. Let us pray. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name 
of your holy servant, Jesus. Amen.